be in Leviticus chapter 2 this evening as we continue our studies in uh, this third book of the Pentateuch, third book of the Old Testament, third book of the Bible. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering, which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil, with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, this chapter speaks to us of the grain offerings which the sons of Israel might bring to the Lord. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, it's been said that, that these offerings, the grain offerings of chapter 2, uh, coupled with the burnt offerings of chapter 1 and the peace offerings of chapter 3, when they're taken together and, uh, and in order, they present uh, what has been called an ideal worship scenario. Each one, as described in chapters 1, 2, and 3, is voluntary and is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And we find these three sacrifices listed together at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 64. And you'll notice here that as prescribed, there is no explicit connection with any sin that the worshiper has committed. 
It's true that grain offerings often accompanied an animal sacrifice. Indeed, uh, some rabbis held that grain offerings always accompanied an animal sacrifice. But as described here, the offering seems to be a, a free will offering, uncompelled, given with a willing spirit. The single word that is translated in this chapter as grain offering, that word that's translated as such, is in itself a, a broader word that can bear the meaning of tribute, offering, gift. It's the word found in 1 Samuel 10.27 when after Saul had been chosen as, as king of Israel, there were certain worthless men who said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. The present that they refused to bring him is the same, same word here that is rendered as grain offering. Similarly, the word is rendered as tribute in 1 Kings 4.21, where we read that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And on the other hand, the word can also be used in the sense of a gift given to appease anger. This is what you find in Genesis, uh, where Jacob is returning to the land of Canaan and he wanted to send a gift ahead of him to his brother Esau. And so he says, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face and he will accept me. This is likewise the word that is translated as offering. In 1 Samuel 3.14, when the Lord revealed to Samuel that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And so it's, it's clear that the, the word itself that's translated as grain offerings here is, is flexible enough to uh, encompass a number of usages. And the Jews apparently said that here this gift as a, as a grain offering was fr a free will offering and they, they argued that it was so because of the one who is described as offering. And so in our, our English translations, uh, we, we read in verse 1, when anyone presents a grain offering. More literally, it would be rendered when a soul presents a grain offering. And uh, the interpretation of the, uh, of the Jews was that the, the soul aspect of it was that these sacrifices were voluntary, coming from the heart, coming from the soul as, as worship to the Lord. And so as we, as we look at the chapter, it can be divided up into, into four parts. And so part one would be verses one through three, which describe the, the grain offering of fine flour. Part two would be verses four through ten, where we have the various offerings of grain offerings that were cooked in different ways. It could be baked in an oven, uh, as we see in verse four, either as unleavened cakes or unleavened wafers. could have been made on a griddle, verse five, or made in a pan, Verse 7. Then part 3, verses 11 through 13, describe what should not be offered with the grain offering and also what should be offered along with the grain offering. And then part 4 would be verses 14 through 16, uh, where we have the, the grain offering of early ripened things, or as the ESV translates it, a grain offering of first fruits uh, that is being offered to the Lord. Now let me speak first of parts 1, 2, and 4, the, the grain offerings themselves in their various forms, and then we'll come back and take a look at part 3. Parts 1, 2, and 4 are similar in that the, the grain offerings that are offered are all to be 
mixed with oil. You see this in regard to the fine flour, verse 2. In regard to the offerings that are baked in an oven, you see it in verse 4, that the unleavened cakes are to be a fine flour mixed with oil. The unleavened wafers are to be spread with oil. In regard to the the grain offerings made on a griddle, it's to be broken into its bits and the oil poured out on it. Uh, The grain offering made in a pan, described in verse 7, is to be a fine flour mixed with oil. And similarly in verse 15, in regard to the, the offering of the early ripened things or first fruits, it's to have oil spread on it. And for all of these offerings, the priest is to offer up a portion of it in smoke on the altar. In regard to the the flour, the priest uh, was commanded to take a handful and offer it up for the soothing aroma. It's called the memorial portion there in verse 2. In regard to the cooked varieties of grain offering described in part 2, the portion offered by a priest is likewise called the memorial portion, as you see in verse 9. And the same holds true in verse 15 for the portion that is offered up in smoke of the first fruits. So he offers a portion, and then what was left over after that handful or that memorial portion uh, was to belong to the priests. This is explicit in regard to the fine flour in verse 3. It's explicit in regard to the, the cooked varieties in verse 10. And I think uh, that we can infer that it is implicit in regard to the first fruits as well. They're supposed to offer a memorial portion. What do they do with what's left after that portion? Well, we would assume that they can do with it what they would do with the other grain offerings uh, that were offered, namely that there would be the remainder that would go to the priest, as in every other grain offering here in the context. Now, accompanying each of the grain offerings in part one and part four uh, was frankincense. The frankincense seems to have been kept separate from the, from the offering as a whole. So, so you have the worshiper going up to, the, uh, to worship. He has his, his grain offering mixed with oil. But it seems that the frankincense would have been kept separate and then only offered up with the memorial portion. Uh, one commentator said that if you, if you had mixed it all together with the priest portion and the memorial portion, it would have made the rest inedible. And uh, I've never tried to eat frankincense. I don't know that I would want to try to eat frankincense. Angela says no. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's assume that that probably is the case. And I think even verse 2 seems to point in this direction when it is said that the priest shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. It almost seems to, to be saying that all of the frankincense goes with the m- memorial portion and is offered up in the, on the altar in fire. And verse 15 likewise mentions the frankincense as being offered with the offering of first fruits. And so uh, seems to have been, as we said, only offered up with the portion in fire, not mixed in with the priest portions. Now, as to the the cooked varieties in verses 4 through 10, nothing is said explicitly in regard to uh, whether there would be frankincense offered uh, with those or not. Could have possibly been understood that it was to be offered here, as in the other cases, but the text is not explicit. Now, in part 3, we read of the the prohibitions, uh, prohibitions in the grain offerings, and those are two. Number one, no leaven. Number two, no honey. Leaven symbolized corruption and sinfulness. And we find this uh, even in the New Testament. We see our Lord Jesus, Luke 12, 1, says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven seems to indicate there's a, an admixture of something that ought not to be there. Likewise, we find Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 
your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so leaven was to be kept out of these sacrifices, though it could be offered under other circumstances, as I believe we'll see as we continue going in the the book of Leviticus. But the symbolism here seems to point to the holiness of the offering and therefore also to the holiness of the true offering holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and also of the holiness that should characterize the people of God. Now, as to the prohibition of honey in regard to the, uh, the grain offering, it's thought that this was either a prohibition against the type of offering which would have been common among idolaters, offering up uh, some kind of grain offering mixed with honey, or perhaps that the grain offering uh, mixed with honey would lead to fermentation and along with that perhaps to a bad smell in the sacrifice as it was going up in the altar on fire. The offerings by fire were to be a a soothing aroma, not an offensive aroma. So leaven and honey are out. Verse 13 tells what is in. Verse 13 indicates that every grain offering was to be seasoned with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. Now, what is, what's this about? Why is this here? Why the salt? Well, salt is a, is a preservative. Salt makes things last. And as such, it is a symbol of preservation, a symbol of perpetuity. And so it is called here the salt of the covenant of your God. And we find, we find this a few other places in the Old Testament. Numbers 18, 19, uh, we read that the covenant of the priesthood is described there as an everlasting covenant of salt. Similarly, the Davidic covenant is described as a covenant of salt in 2 Chronicles 13, 5. The Lord God of Israel gave rule over Israel to David and his sons forever. And thus it's called a covenant of salt, denoting the, the perpetuity, the foreverness of that Davidic covenant. And so the point is that God and his people were not, and as we'll see, are not in a fickle relationship. The Israelites were in their day, and we today in Christ are in covenant with God. And as such, there are covenant obligations, covenant obligations upon the Lord, which he has committed himself to be our God, and covenant obligations upon us. Salt in the offering was a symbol and a reminder of the covenant and of covenant continuance, that this covenant continues on. Now we've seen here some of the basics about how these sacrifices were offered, what was to be offered, how it was to be offered, what was not to be offered, but let's notice, let's notice a, few more, a few more things here. The offering is uh, divided, as we've seen, between the memorial portion and the remainder, which went to the priest. The portion that was offered on the altar seems to have gotten its name as the the memorial portion in that it was offered by the worshiper for the purpose of seeking God's remembrance of them. It's not that God was in danger of forgetting them, but just like we see in the Psalms sometimes, the Psalms will cry out, Oh God, remember me. This seems to have been a tangible way 
a physical way in which the worshiper was crying out, remember me. And thus we find in Psalm 20, verse 3, may he remember all your meal offerings. And uh, the word for meal offerings is the same that we find here, uh, the rendered as, as grain offerings. And, and the idea of remembrance seems to be what is, what is going on. May he remember you in light of your meal offerings. And the following verse, Psalm 20, verse 4, indicates uh, that this is the case. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. In short, this seems to have been an offering in which the worshiper was seeking favor from the Lord. And in truth, those who seek the Lord's favor truly and humbly, coming in repentance and faith on the Lord's terms, those who came so then and those who come so now will find what they are seeking. They will not seek the Lord's favor and the Lord's remembrance in vain. Surely, in giving these instructions, the Lord was not requiring a vain thing for his people to do. He was telling them the way by which he might be sought, and he would answer those who came to him truly and humbly and in faith and repentance. They did not seek God's favor in vain, and neither will we. We, by God's grace in the new covenant, are not obliged to give grain offerings, but nevertheless, when we seek the Lord's favor truly, Humbly, in repentance and faith, we will find it. And the Lord declared to his people of old in Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14, he said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And surely those words hold true for us as well. When we seek the Lord with all of our heart, on God's terms, we will find him. Now, another thing that we, we can observe here is the Lord's provision for his servants. In this case, the provision for the priest. This was an important way in which God provided for the needs of those who served him in a priestly capacity. And though New Testament preachers are certainly not priests in the sense of an Old Testament priesthood, yet there is a similarity in the way in which God provides for them. And Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, where he says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is the way that the Lord provides for those who serve him in these ways. As for the Old Testament priests in the Old Testament, as for New Testament Preachers of the gospel in the New Testament. Those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. And while we're here, I just want to say thank you for supporting me and therefore my family so generously. You guys do a great job. When we have business meetings every November, you guys vote to pay my salary and you guys support me. And I want to say thank you uh, for letting me earn my living as a proclaimer of the gospel. And let's also observe here that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the grain offering. Now, Christ is never referred to uh, by the, the term that we see here as used for grain offering, but nevertheless, it is not insignificant that Jesus is called the, the bread of life John 6, the bread of God who came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
It's not insignificant that Jesus was without blemish, without sin, therefore symbolically speaking, without leaven. Jesus was offered up to God the Father, and yet he is fed upon spiritually by those who believe in him. Those who feed upon him by faith are priests, right? Those who, those who have a share of Christ are priests to God and his Father, as we find in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. And as Christ was himself without leaven, so we too must be without leaven. We must, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, as we heard earlier, we must clean out the old leaven so that we may be a new lump, just as we are, in fact, unleavened. We've been made unleavened in Christ. We've made holy, been made holy by Christ. Therefore, we are called to, to live as holy, to live up to that holiness to which Christ has set us apart and sanctified us. And finally, beloved, fortify yourselves with the salt of the covenant. As we have already observed, salt is a preservative, and this reference to the salt of the covenant is a, a reference to the stability and the lasting nature of the Lord's covenant. Now, we, we probably don't think too much about salt in this way, right? You put, you put salt, on your, salt on your eggs or you like a salty piece of bacon or something like that. But a couple of years ago, uh, Ruby's parents gave me a Virginia ham for Christmas. I don't know if, anybody, if, you've, uh, if any one of you have had one of those Virginia hams that comes in a, comes in a, uh, a, pay, uh, a cloth sack. And so we, we, kept it, we kept it in our basement for 10 months, right? Not in the refrigerator. We just kept it in the basement. 10 months, and uh, late, late October, uh, I think it was about my birthday time, Ruby, Ruby got it out, and we cooked it, and, and we ate it, right? The salt, the salt preserved it. The meat was preserved by the salt. And friend, we, we would do well to, to ponder this. If the stability of the old covenant could be symbolized by salt that preserves things, makes them last, then how much more so the new covenant reality in Christ, let's let's flip over there to, to Hebrews eight again, which uh, which we read at the beginning. Let's let's look at the way the writer to the Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah thirty one, there in uh, there in Hebrews eight. So this is Hebrews eight, starting in in verse seven. He says, "For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have uh, there would have been no occasion sought for a second, for finding fault with them." He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, Christian brother, Christian sister, I want you to be encouraged by this tonight, that there is a stability and a certainty in your relationship with the Lord that is not dependent on your feelings, is not dependent on, on your whims. The Lord teaches us about 
what a covenant is, and he gives us a, a picture of it in the institution of marriage. And uh, for those of you who are married, and when, when marriage is as it should be, it is a joy and a relief to know that you are in a covenant relationship with your spouse. Right? It's completely, completely different from, from the dating relationship. You don't know, he loves me, he loves me not. When you're married, you're married. You're, you're committed to one another. What a blessing it is that you can set your heart at rest in a relationship defined by a covenant. It's helpful. It's comforting. And if that is the case in human marriage, then how much more so in the case with our heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. If our earthly marriage covenant has this salt of perpetuity in them, and we're still fickle people to some degree, right? Just saying I do doesn't make you a faultless person. But still, how much more so does this salt of perpetuity properly belong to our covenant relationship with the Lord? And uh, the good news is, again, that our covenant with the Lord is not based on our fickleness. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on even our good behavior. Rather, it is based on the promises of God, which are made certain by the blood of Jesus Christ and sealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I can remember as I was growing up and I was already a professing Christian, I said to my mother once, I said, Mom, what if, what if I don't really feel like I'm a Christian? And what she said to me was helpful, and I'm sure this is not the right way to answer this question for everyone who asks that question, but what she said to me was, I think, the right answer for me at the time. She said, if I woke up one morning... And I didn't feel like I'm married. That wouldn't change the fact that I'm married. Now again, when some people say, I don't feel like I'm a Christian, you might need to do some heart probing. And maybe the reason they don't feel like a Christian is because they're living in unrepentant sin. Maybe it's because they have never really repented and believed the gospel. But for me, I think that the answer that she gave was a really helpful one. It's been one that has stuck with me for a long time. I don't know, 25 years, maybe, maybe much more. I, I don't know for sure. But it's helpful to be reminded that there is an objective reality to our relationship to the Lord, that our relationship to the Lord is based on his promises to us, that God is faithful to his word, that he's faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his people. Praise God for the salt of the covenant. The covenant is preserved. As uh, David said of of the covenant with him in 2 Samuel 23, 5. It is ordered in all things and sure. So it is with us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and uh, for being in covenant with us. Unworthy and sinful though we be, yet you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have drawn us to your Son, Lord, we pray that you would keep us for yourself, that you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage our hearts by knowing the truth of your faithfulness. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.